I get people that actually stop me on the street now going, who are you? Don't I know you? Or, I mean, they don't say, hey, you're John Bryant. <laughs> they want me to tell them who I am. You know? What do you say? I go, no. <laughs> no, no, I'm not him. This is death, sex, and money. Look, I got a gun out there in my purse. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. You got a wife somewhere, you remember that? <laughs> and need to talk about more. Well, could we have the money right now, sir? You see the parking meter's running outside. I'm Anna Sale. John Prine is 71 years old, and right now having the best album sales of his career. His new record is called The Tree of Forgiveness. We talked in New York just as it was coming out. Last night we ate a really swanky restaurant here in New York City, and I'm a meat and potatoes guy, but they served me something that looked like a, a baby hedgehog, right? <laughs> With liverwurst inside of it. But it was pretty darn good and pretty expensive, too. <laughs> I ain't got nobody hanging around my doorstep. Ain't got no loose change just to hang around my jeans. John's been in the music business for 47 years. He's never taken more than a year off from touring. And when we talked, he was getting ready for a big sold-out show in New York. I just had a knee replacement exactly six weeks ago. Really? And I threw my cane away three days ago. And I'm going to play Radio City on Friday night and hopefully dance off the stage. John is renowned for the way he can put together a song. Bob Dylan called him one of his favorite songwriters. Johnny Cash said he was a source of inspiration. I've loved John Prine for a long time. I sang his songs around campfires when I was growing up in West Virginia. When I was a child, my family would travel down to western Kentucky, where my parents were born. This song is called Paradise, off his first album from 1971. And Daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County, down by the Green River, where paradise lay. Well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking. Mr. Peabody's coal train has hauled it away. John's parents were from western Kentucky, but he grew up in a suburb of Chicago. That's where he started out playing open mics. Chris Christofferson heard his music and helped him get a record deal. But until then, John was making money delivering mail. When I was a mailman out there braving the elements, between bees, wasps, and dogs, whew, I mean, it was a jungle out there. It drove me to songwriting. <laughs> Going back to 1971, when your first album came out, it's after you'd had this incredible breakthrough. What was that time like? It was just a flash. Airports and sound checks and meeting people that felt really close to you because of your... It, it, that was a tough one for me to get over. People felt really close to me because of my song lyrics. Huh. And I was, I'd always go, wait a second, who are you? Come home late and you come home early. You come home big when you're feeling small. You come home straight and you come home curly. Sometimes you don't come home at all. It was like 
I was writing about things private to me and dear to me. And to have people know me before they shook my hand was odd to me. I had to kind of get over that, you know, because the people were, they were being sincere. They were introduced to me through my records. And and in quite a few situations, people um, would pass my songs over. A lot of people got to know my songs through a good friend or through their mother and father would introduce them to them. Some people told me that uh, the car trips they would take with their parents were the only time they felt like a family, and I would be the soundtrack. Hmm. And that's pretty neat. It's better to get known for your music that way than somebody taking advertisements over the radio for you, you know? When you started your record company... Yeah. Why did you do that? It was partly because I moved to Nashville, and I really had nothing against the people at the major labels. It was They were frustrated trying to market me, and I was frustrated from them being frustrated. Uh-huh. And I just figured, I'm going to start my own label and just service people that come to see me. That's all I was trying to do. At first, it was by mail order. People sent in checks before I wrote the songs. They said, I don't care what your next record's called. Here's 15 bucks. Send it to me. And the record was paid for before I went in the studio. That's unheard of, you know. Who taught you how to manage your money? (laughs) Nobody, apparently. (laughs) I mean, if I write a song that I think is great, I spend the money then. I may not record (laughs) the song for five years. You know, everything I spend, ask my wife. I mean, everything I spend is my imaginary bank. You know, they let me have an account. I call it my Scrooge McDuck account. <laughs> like I, I picture myself just climbing in the vault and rolling around in the money. But it's all money that doesn't have to pay for any bills or anything. They let me have my own little world, you know. Otherwise, I spend money like crazy. I mean, on nothing, you know. Sometimes my old heart is like a washing machine. Bounces around till my soul comes clean. And when I'm clean and hung out to dry, I'm gonna make you laugh until you cry. One thing John loves to buy with his money classic cars. He spends a lot of time behind the wheel. I just love to drive. A- I like to drive not on interstates, just drive on an old road. And it's pretty slow, but, you know, you get to see more. Drive by yourself? Yeah. I, get, I, I, I probably write more songs with a steering wheel in my hand than a guitar, you know. It kind of helps me to think driving down the road. It helps to have distractions sometimes. Do, do you feel like at this point in your life and in your career that, like, that you need to engineer alone time? Like, to make that so that you have that time to yourself? Well, I didn't think so, but my wife, Fiona, who's managing me now, and our son, Jody, who's running our record label, came up to me last year and said, uh, real solemn, like they said, John, it's time to make a record. Because they knew I've been writing all along, and they put me in a hotel suite for a week with 10 boxes of unfinished lyrics and three guitars and a ukulele. 
Fiona knew that I operate better in a, a hotel room than I do at home. At home, I just look for ways to get out of the, doing things. But in hotel rooms, I have some sort of, you know, there's something going on. I, I'm ready to do a show or something. So they left me to it. And I, I would knock around during the day and go get a hot dog. And at nighttime, I'd start writing about 3 in the morning, order room service up and have a party by myself and end up with a couple of songs every day. Last night, turned on the TV, looked out the window, and then pulled down the shade. And I came to the conclusion my man could not be made. What'd that look like, having a party by yourself? Were you sitting at the I, desk? I spread uh, the papers all over the suite. I mean, everywhere you went, there was an empty box with papers out. I just grabbed songs and put them together. Like, some of them fit, some of them didn't, you know. I hear a lot of empty spaces. I see a big hole in you. John met his wife, Fiona, when he was in his early 40s and twice divorced. She was living in Ireland. They were long distance for five years until she moved over to Nashville with her son, Jody, whom John adopted. It wasn't long after that that we started having babies. And then it was my idea. I thought, geez, I better buy a ring for this girl, you know, or else people are going to start looking down on me, especially when the second, we had the first baby, Jack, and Jack was born in December of 94. Second baby was born in October of 95. People looked at me like, can't, don't you have something else to do? You know, <laughs> leave that woman alone. <laughs> but you were apart for a long while, yeah. We were, yeah, we were. Before you met your wife, Fiona, did you think you were going to be a dad? Well, I didn't plan on it, you know. And I got to say, when I became a father the very first time, I had no idea that it, how much I'd been flying around all my life. Just literally, it brought my feet right to the ground when I saw that baby boy in the hospital. It just made me feel so much more comfortable in the world. I, I always felt really odd in the world, you know, but like being a dad just did something for me, just brought me down and made me feel like I was, you know, just like everybody else. I was, that was something I was striving for, actually, for years. I didn't want to be an oddball. I'd see people that seemed to be normal, and I thought, boy, that's a good thing. But I... That's how I ended up making my living, being Mr. Oddball, you know. I mean, I get these thoughts and stuff, and, and I would like to make them into songs, and they might sound odd at the time, but then people connect to them over throughout their life, and it turns out I'm doing something, something that may resemble something solid, you know. When you say you felt like your feet came on the ground, yeah, was it because you had a sense of, belonging in this family or was it like a very clear purpose of just like helping keep this little baby alive I was something I was a dad I was something you know coming up 
John talks about going through treatment for cancer twice. Sam Phillips, the producing legend who launched Elvis's career, is the one who originally set him up with his oncologist. And he goes, this is how you get there, and you need to go there. And if you don't, he said, I will come to Nashville, Tennessee, and kick your ass every <laughs> inch of the way. And I said, yes, Mr. Phillips. <laughs> you know, Sam Phillips tells you where to go, you better go. We heard from a lot of you after we launched our new series, Hot Dates, all about dating this summer. Many of you shared your own dating philosophies. Colleen, a 33-year-old in Toronto, said, yes, dating is exhausting. But she wrote, what is more hopeful than people choosing to believe in love and searching for someone to share it with? But William wrote in about struggling with trying to date again after what he called a dumpster fire of a divorce. I have hesitated getting back into the dating pool for two reasons, he said in an email. Pools have deep ends with no lifeguards. And I feel real bad introducing someone into my life while it still smells of gasoline. And many of you responded to hearing Dan, the widower in our episode, talk about how he's rethinking how he deals with consent in the Me Too era. In the past, he told me, if a woman indicated she didn't want to do something, he'd just try another tactic, thinking they were playing the same flirtatious game. Some of you wrote us about that in fury, others with exasperation. At Von Hottie tweeted at us, while I was listening, I thought, Dan needs to read a romance novel. They are practically scripts for practicing enthusiastic consent while making moves. And a 27-year-old listener named Audrey in Oakland said hearing Dan made her think about a recent date when things got physical and it felt fine at first, but then she didn't want to go further. When she said no, her date did stop, but she kept thinking about it. It kind of just disturbed me how hungry he was. And I was so afraid of that hunger. And I struggled a lot to just say no. Not as in like I couldn't say no, but like I'm, I'm just always bracing myself to finally say no at some point. Or, you know, at what point is he going to like cross the line? Do I see it coming now or how do I feel right now? And that complicates like the whole thing with even just first dates where on one hand I'm trying to impress the guy and be my flirty, engaging, brilliant self. But at the same time, like, I can't pay attention to whether I even like the person because I'm just trying to be attractive. On the next episode, we hear from a lot of men and how they're feeling about what it means to be a man right now. It's getting harder for people to figure out what a man is supposed to be. Yeah, it's very strange right now to be a dude. How do I want to say this? Uh, there's more of a, an eye on masculinity in general, men, what their actions are. It's not as easy to figure out what it is to be a man. It's tense, for sure, right now. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. 
Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. We have had a lot of exciting new things to share with you about the show recently, but this might be some of our biggest news yet. Death, Sex, and Money is officially going to be live in New York City at the Tribeca Festival on June 11th. And I want to personally invite you to the live taping we'll be doing with the legendary journalist Kara Swisher. If you know Kara's work, you know her ability to get people to tell her things is unmatched. And she does it in her signature hard-charging way. She's not afraid of things getting a little combustible. I have a slightly different interview style, so we're going to talk about that and play around with that in experimental ways that I think will make this a special show unlike any of our other live shows up to this point. And it's not often that I get to do a live Death, Sex, and Money show in New York, so I really hope to see you there. Whether you're in the city, on the East Coast, or just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash DeathSexMoney. We are so excited to see you there. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. John Prine has a prominent scar on his neck from surgery for stage 3 cancer. He was diagnosed the year he turned 50, just after his two young boys were born. You know, so it was boom, boom, boom. Three things happened like that. And my wife had the funeral, had her hands full with the kids, and all of a sudden we had to go off to Texas and do all this radiation and surgery and everything. And it was uh, pretty scary, you know. Did you think at that time that you might die? You know what? I didn't. Something told me that I wasn't, you know. I didn't feel that way. I didn't feel like the deck was against me. Uh, I quit smoking because the doctor said, he said, I can't tell you it has anything to do with this present cancer, but 
I, I smoked a pack a day for 35 years. And he said, wouldn't it be a good time to quit? And I said, you're right. So I did. I still miss them. I miss cigarettes like crazy. Was uh, covering your medical bills a worry for you? Not really. I I never worry about money anyway, you know. I just don't. You know, I don't worry about money and I don't run to catch airplanes, you know. Um, something interesting, though, that happened was uh, a good friend of mine in Nashville, a songwriter named Roger Cook, he comes to me with a song, uh, I Just Want to Dance with You. And I jumped on it. And I said, I know how I write that. So I filled in all the lines and I recorded it. Nobody else recorded it. Ten years go by, George Strait records it. It goes up to the number one the same week I'm in the hospital. I don't want to be the kind to hesitate and be too shy, way too late. I come out of my first thing of radiation, got in a rental car, and the radio was just on whatever dial, and my throat was sore from the radiation. Turned on the car, George Strait's number one with my song. That song paid for all the bills that the insurance didn't. No matter how good insurance you got, that's a lot of bills. And that number one paid for all of them. So I never had to worry one thing about it. It's a good thing I'm not worried about money. I know. Well, I'm, like, I'm just a lucky guy. You know? That's what I was thinking. It's like well, you don't have to chase airplanes if, like, George Strait is your uh, your angel well, who shows up on the radio singing that, your song. That's the only one George ever sang, but, boy, he picked a good one, yeah, really good one. I got a feeling that you have a heart like mine, so let it show, let it shine. For oh, if we have a chance to make one heart of two, I just want to dance with you. I want to dance. After you had your surgery, your cancer surgery, and your physical appearance changed, uh-huh. were you aware of people responding to you differently? Actually, at first it was just kids, you know, because kids are honest. I, I still to this day, I mean, kids, they look at the back of my neck. The adults that just act like, oh, nothing happened, yeah. I just never tried to hide or, or anything, you know. It just, I never looked good in a turtleneck anyway, so I didn't want to wear one, you know. But uh, I got used to it, you know, because I don't have to look at it all day long. You know, other people do. But um, I always thought who I am is uh, from inside of me, you know. That, that's the person I've lived with since I was a child. And what you see in the mirror is, it's kind of cool, but you're just seeing in one dimension, you know. It's like uh, I used to just comb the front of my hair. I never combed the back of it because <laughs> I never, I'm never walking behind me, you know. <laughs> you know, my, I've never been friends with my hair. I think you, if you look at pictures of me throughout the years, you can tell we had some kind of argument going on. There's a battle. The two of us, there is. There's a battle. Finally, we became like old enemies. You know, we hung out together like. Stalin and Lennon, you know. <laughs> Lonesome friends, the signs say The world will end most any day Well, if it does, then that's okay Cause I don't live here anyway I live down deep inside my head Where long ago I made my bed 
I get my mail in Tennessee. My wife, my dog, and my family. Uh-huh. When you were diagnosed with cancer again, did it feel like I've done this? Or did it feel new? Oh, what happened was um, um, the doctors that originally, you know, dealt with my cancer knew that somehow I was going to get lung cancer down the line, but they just watched it. So I knew there was something they were watching. And by golly, it took, what, 15 years or almost 20? It was so new, the cancer was. They cut it out, and they didn't have to do any follow-up with radiation or chemo. It hadn't spread at all. They just got it, and they were expecting it. So, in other words, what I'm saying is, I wasn't that surprised. I mean, it still jolts you. Yeah, when I get to heaven, I'm going to take that wristwatch off my arm. What are you going to do with time after you bought the farm? When you walked into that hotel room, your wife and son sent you two to write songs. Were you thinking about death? (laughs) No, not at all. I know what you mean. (laughs) When I get to heaven, it was about smoking a cigarette. It wasn't about dying. It was my little happy hour song. Like if we'd get to be 5 or 5.30, I'd be humming to myself, going to have a cocktail, vodka and ginger ale, you know, and then a cigarette that's nine miles long because I can't get my mind off those cigarettes. And I thought, where could I smoke a cigarette? And I thought, heaven. (laughs) You know, there couldn't be any cancer in heaven. Why would people want to go there if there was cancer? Because then I'm going to get a cocktail, vodka, and ginger ale. Yeah, I'm going to smoke a cigarette that's nine miles long. I'm going to kiss that pretty girl on the tilt of world. Yeah, this old man is going to town. So would you, like, sing this little song to yourself when you're making a drink before it yeah, was a song? I'm, yeah, you know, like I start skipping and I'm going towards the fridge to get that ice cubes by golly if i if i make as much money as i do a year and i go to the fridge and there's no ice cubes in there i am pissed you know i want to know who stole my ice cubes you know people in europe don't respect ice whatsoever you'll order a drink there and they'll give you one lonesome ice cube i mean i don't understand why everybody all god's children Need ice, you know. God bless America. God bless America. <laughs> God bless ice cubes <laughs> and apple pie. <laughs> That's John Prine. His new album is called The Tree of Forgiveness. You can see a list of his songs that we included in this episode at our website, deathsexmoney.org. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm based at the Center for Investigative Reporting in Emeryville, California. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Stephanie Joyce, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death Sex Money on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. This album is John Prine's first to make the Billboard Top 10. 
and he told me he's looking forward to some more Scrooge McDuck money coming from it. I've already got the cars picked out. Oh, I got some sweet cars picked out. I don't collect, like, hot rods or 50s cars and that. I don't like to be one of those old guys going down the road. You know, I just like a car, almost like a daddy's car, like a four-door that's been kept really good. You know, recently I saw a 62 Chrysler Imperial convertible. It looks like it's from, it looks like a flying saucer with red leather interior. <laughs> and if that ain't sex and money, I don't know what is. Yeah. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. 